Father, we need your instruction. We need your guidance. We need your help to understand what you say. And we thank you that you have given us the help that we need in the person of the Spirit so that he might guide us into the truth, that he might illuminate the Scriptures so that we understand them, that he might empower us so that we might live them. And our Father, as we look at these verses this morning, would you particularly create in us hearts of gratitude? It has been so easy this year to fall into temptation and trap and the snare of complaint and discouragement, despondency, ingratitude. And Father, we need reminding that gratitude is possible, that gratitude is necessary. And we don't give our gratitude and our thanks in the same way that the world does. Oh, we are grateful for food and shelter. We're grateful for relationships, even as the world is. But far more, our Father, we want our gratitude to terminate on you as the giver of every good and perfect gift and as the one who is sovereignly good in every circumstance of our lives. I pray that intentionally for my own heart even as I pray it corporately for all our hearts. For we need to acknowledge your goodness in our particular circumstances this day. We need to learn gratitude. And so, Father, would you guide us into that this morning, even as we look at this familiar text of Scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Rudyard Kipling was one of the most well-known British writers from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He penned a number of poems and stories, some of which you're familiar with, classics like How the Leopard Got Its Spots and The Jungle Book. His writing made him both famous and extraordinarily wealthy. A newspaper reporter approached him on one day and said, Mr. Kipling... I've just read that someone calculated that the amount of money you make for your writings accumulates to over a hundred dollars per word that you write. And so seeking to humble Mr. Kipling, he reached into his pocket and pulled out a hundred dollar bill and he handed it to Kipling and said, Mr. Kipling, would you please give me one of your one hundred dollar words? Kipling took the $100 bill, pushed it into his pocket, and said, Thanks. <laughs> That's a $100 word. It is, isn't it? We need to learn gratitude. Even unbelievers recognize that gratitude is a necessary component of our lives. And And in all honesty, I am really thankful for our secular culture 
that at least in our country points us annually to a season in which it is appropriate to give thanks. And it's fitting to do that. But it is far more fitting to give thanks to the Lord, to be grateful to Him, to be grateful for His work in our lives. And that is where the Apostle Paul will point us this morning in Colossians chapter 3. What he will say is this, that Christ is sanctifying us to be thankful. Our Savior would have us to be the kinds of people who are thankful But along with that, He is not only sanctifying us to be thankful, He is also sanctifying us by being thankful. So thankfulness is both the goal and the means to the goal. It is that for which we are striving, and it is also the way to which we will arrive at that intended goal. It is the goal and the means of our sanctification. And in this passage that I trust you're already familiar with, the Apostle will provide us with three admonitions for when and how we are to be thankful. Three admonitions, three exhortations, three compelling ways to say this is how to be thankful and this is when we are to be thankful. Just by way of reminder, let me uh, point you to the context in which the Apostle writes these words The first two chapters of Colossians explain the position of the believer in Christ. You'll notice even as I read earlier, chapter 3 begins, therefore, and with that therefore, he's beginning to draw some conclusions. Based on what you are in Christ, this is how you then ought to live. This is, this is how God ought to be transforming and changing your life. And he's going to begin this chapter by talking about the process of sanctification. He begins in the opening verses, verses 1 and 2 particularly, talking about a renewed mind, that we need to think a new way. If we're going to be sanctified, if we're going to live out our position in Christ, we need to think and renew our minds in a fresh way and focus, he says, particularly on the person of Christ, focus on the heavenly realities of what we are, focus on what is to come and not what is now. We need a new way of thinking. And then along with that, he will also say we are to put off sin. We are to mortify our bodies, mortify the flesh. He starts that in verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, and so on. And he'll spend a number of verses talking about the kinds of things that we are to volitionally, intentionally, aggressively Pursue putting off. You ought to stop living this way because you're in Christ, because you're thinking in a new way, put these things off. And then starting in verse 12, he'll remind us of the kinds of things that by the Spirit of God we can put on. So as those who have been chosen of God, in other words, you have been chosen in Christ, you have a new position in Christ, you have a new spirit that indwells you, because you have those things and are now holy, And beloved, parentheses, by God, he says, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility. And he carries on, again, a longer list of attributes that we ought to be pursuing, putting on to replace those things that we are putting off. Now, as we make our way through these verses in this opening section, you you might ask the question, how can we be sanctified in this way? How How do we do that? I mean, I know, put off, put on, renew the mind. 
But is there some mechanism which will help us in that process? And I think the Apostle is pointing us in that direction in verses 15 to 17, where he gives us three words of admonishment, three words of exhortation, three words of help to guide us. These are three instructions that are particularly related to the process of sanctification and how we can be sanctified through the process of gratitude. So consider, first of all, verse 15, gratitude and Christ's peace. Can I just ask you a question today? What's ruling your heart right now? I'm not asking what's in your heart, because all of us have a variety of different kinds of things that are competing for attention. But what's ruling it? What's the master? Disappointment? Anger? Anxiety? Worry? Outrage? Discontentment? Rebellion? Despair? Joylessness? Anybody been tempted with any of those like in the last eight months? Okay, I have one volunteer up here too now. It's true, isn't it? It's just, it's absolutely inundating. <laughs> um, I appreciate um, Kevin Carson. Many of you know Kevin from our conference, and, and he's become a, a good friend. And I, I was posting something on Twitter today. I, I try and stay on Twitter just long enough to throw a Bible verse on there and get off. Twitter is not good for my heart. And I threw the Bible verse up there this morning, and he was the first one in line in my feed, and so I couldn't help but read it. And the comment was something like, I am so discouraged by everything I'm seeing in the media and on Twitter these days. And I didn't like it, but I, I mean, I didn't, you know, push the like button. But I, I, I did inwardly say, amen, brother. <laughs> it's hard. Everything, everything around us is pushing us to despair and despondency, isn't it? And so Paul says this, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule. That word rule is a word that relates to an umpire's decision. It's used in the, in the Greek culture both in the athletic realm and in the judicial realm. And it has the idea that the umpire or the judge is the one who has absolute authority in guiding the direction of what's going on in his realm. In both places, the judge administrates and controls his setting. And the apostle would have us to know that the peace of Christ ought to be controlling the setting of our lives. The peace of Christ ought to be the final declaration in our hearts about the setting that is around us. And when he talks about the peace of Christ, he is speaking not about the subjective experience of the peace of Christ, but he is talking about the objective reality that we have been put at peace with God. I think he's thinking about the kinds of things that he would write to the Romans in chapter 5. We, we saw this some time ago. 
after this great declaration of justification by faith in Romans chapter 4, he says in chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just have the experience and the feeling of peace. We have the reality of peace. Friends, God is no longer at war with you. He is no longer your enemy. He has been made your friend. Indeed, He has even adopted you into His family. So verse 10 of that same chapter, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Through the death of His Son, much more than having been reconciled, we will be saved through His life. If when we were enemies, He made us His friends, now being His friends, how much more will we have through Him? That reality is what ought to be adjudicating our hearts in these moments. The peace of God is the presence of harmony. It is the presence of joy. And that reality of who we are in Christ and what God has done to bring us into the flock ought to calm every fear, every anxiety, every despondency. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 10. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Matthew ten twenty eight. I think what's notable for us there is not just that we shouldn't fear those who are in the world, but brothers and sisters, we no longer have any, any reason to fear God in that way either. We are at peace with Him. Yes, He, he deserves all of our reverence. Yes, He deserves all of our, all of our worship. Yes, He, He, He deserves every, every aspect of energy, every bit of energy and service and work for Him because we understand His exalted position in the universe. But because we are in Christ, He is no longer at enmity with us. And we no longer have to fear Him the way the world fears Him. And that peace ought to be ruling us adjudicating our position. And the place where he ought to be particularly ruling us is, notice the apostle says, verse 15, in your hearts. That is, the reality of the peace that we have with God ought to be ruling our mission control center, everything that is within us. So when the apostle says our hearts, he's referring to the inner man, everything that is within us, our, our minds, the way we think, our desires, our longings, our will, our affections, our, our joys, our volition, our conscience, all of that stuff that's inside us, that is begging to come out, should be ruled and dominated by the peace of God. Isn't a similar 
to what Jesus says to the disciples in John chapter 14, when he is with them in the upper room, he's about to go to the cross. And he says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. John 14, 27. Oh, brothers, let that reality of what God has provided for us through Christ lead, judge, rule, compel our inner man. How are we going to stimulate that peace? I mean, honestly, it's one thing to say that, isn't it? But how do we, how do we bring the reality of what Christ has done for us to judge our hearts in such a way that we aren't anxious? Notice what he says at the end of this verse, and be thankful. I think the apostle would have us to understand that the way to getting the peace of Christ to rule our hearts is by feeding gratitude. We'll be controlled by the reality of Christ's gift of peace to us when we are thankful. More than any other writer in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is driven by gratitude. The word group for words related to thankfulness are used 54 times in the New Testament. Paul uses them 37 times. In fact, all of the general epistles, so all the epistles written by men not named Paul, none of them use that word group even one time. Our Savior even only uses that word about eight to ten times, which is not to say that Paul is more grateful than Jesus. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that Paul is absolutely driven and compelled by gratitude. And, and we find that emphasis particularly in this book. So he begins the letter with gratitude. Chapter 1, verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. What does he pray? Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Chapter 2, verse 7, he exhorts them to to walk in the way that they have received Jesus Christ. Verse 7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Three times in verses 15 to 17 of chapter five, of chapter three, we'll see this same principle. And then we'll see it again in chapter four, verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Oh friends, in order to experience the reality that that God is at peace with me and to let that peace rule me in every circumstance of my life, I need to feed gratitude. What are you feeding today? At five this morning, our cat said, it's time for breakfast. 
And Jack has a particular way of making his desires known. So it is almost impossible to ignore. I think had he had a hammer and, and a thumb to be able to hold a hammer, he'd have beat down the door. There are things that are pushing at us and saying, you need to act in this way. Our culture is weighing in on us and pressing us and compelling us to move away from Christ and to be ungrateful and to be discontent. And we need to stop feeding the cat and start feeding the soul with gratitude. What's notable about this admonition when he says, be thankful, he doesn't just mean us to understand that we need to be grateful in our hearts. He'll talk about that in a moment. We need to be grateful in our hearts. But the emphasis here is that the gratitude needs to be expressed. The gratitude needs to be spoken. So we, we, we need both to think and to speak gratefully. As I was putting my thoughts together for the message on Thursday afternoon, I wrote this. Our speech should be sprinkled with gratitude. And I x that out. And I said our speech should be saturated with gratitude. And we don't want just a little sprinkling here and there. We want everything that we say, everything we think, to be dominated by gratitude. In fact, one commentator has suggested that, quote, the regular offering of thanks to God is almost synonymous with being a Christian. And in fact, isn't, isn't it true that one of the marks of the unbeliever is their ingratitude? Remember Romans chapter 1, even though they knew God. So they knew God in their hearts. Their conscience was convicting them. Their conscience was compelling them. They knew the reality of God in the world around them. They observed the reality of God. They, even though they knew God, Romans 1.21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. One of the fundamental marks of an unbeliever is he doesn't give thanks. He is ungrateful. And so, as believers... We will be thankful, and that gratitude will contribute to our hearts being controlled by peace. Is your heart ruled by peace today? Is your heart characterized by the peace of Christ? Are you free from anxiety and worry? Have you taken time to verbally give thanks to God? Is your speech saturated with gratitude? Can I just give you a couple of suggestions? These are suggestions. These are extra biblical. They come with no biblical authority, but they've just, they're things that I've found helpful over the years. If you're struggling to be thankful, might I just commend to you that typically you eat three times a day, and maybe for every time you eat, to at least take a moment to reflect beforehand and write down one thing for which to be grateful. So that at the end of the day, you reminded yourselves of three provisions of God's grace in your life for which you can be thankful. They can be, they can be manifestations of His physical provision for you, an ability to exercise, a blooming flower, an encouraging doctor visit. Or they might be spiritual provisions, a friend that prayed with you, a friend that sent you a text, forgiveness for sin, growth and maturity, 
revelation of something that you read in the scriptures that day. But, but just take a moment every day to write down three things for which you're grateful and then pray through that list every day. At the end of the week, you have 21 things for which you're thankful, at least. And you pray through that list of 21 things every week, oh friend, your heart is going to be saturated with gratitude. A second thing you might consider doing, and again, this is extra biblical, just a suggestion. Take a day and just pray grateful prayers. Don't, don't pray for your needs. There's time for that later. But pray trusting God for your needs. Thank you, God, that, that you will provide Thank you, God, that you have given forgiveness. Thank you, God, for this aspect of my sanctification, for this aspect of my salvation. Thank you for this person in my life. Thank you for this hardship in my life. Thank you for this hard person in my life. Just spend the entire day praying not for answers, not for needs, but spend the entire day just cultivating gratitude. What we, what we want is to do what the apostle says here. We want to be thankful, to speak thankfully, to express gratitude. And those are the kinds of things that might lead you in that way. One exhortation that Paul gives us is about gratitude in Christ's peace. A second exhortation is in verse 16. It is gratitude and Christ's word Notice the parallels between verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 begins, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Every aspect of those opening phrases is parallel. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, ruling, dwelling richly in your hearts, Within you. And the apostle would have us to know that, that in both of these verses, he wants us to be controlled by something, ruled by something, dominated by something, compelled by something. In verse 15, the reality of God's provision through Christ of peace with him is what should rule us and control us. In verse 16, the reality of Christ's word should control us. In fact, if you take verse 16 and put it in parallel with Ephesians 5.18, we understand as well that we are controlled, but when we are controlled by the Word of God, we're actually being controlled by the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God fills us by placing us under the domination, control, and submission to the Word of God. So when the Word of Christ is dwelling richly within us, then the Holy Spirit is richly controlling us. This word of Christ that he's talking about in verse 16 is the word about Jesus Christ. It is the word that reveals the truth about our Savior and his saving work for us. It is ultimately then also a reference to all of the scriptures. The scriptures are to dominate us, to control us, to guide us, to push us along in life, to compel us. 
And notice that he says in verse 16 that it should do that richly, abundantly, extravagantly, lavishly. I remember one of the first times I actually read that verse. I mean, like actually read it. You know the difference, right? There are times you just kind of verify there are words on the page and there are times when you meditate on that. And I remember asking myself the question, Terry, is the word rich in your life or is the word impoverished in your life? That's a good question for us. Is the word abundant and lavish or is it poverty-stricken? And when it lives in us lavishly and richly, notice what happens. You get all wisdom. When the Word of Christ richly dwells within you, when the Spirit of Christ controls you and dominates you and fills you, you will have all wisdom to teach and admonish one another. When, when we are controlled by the Spirit and the Word, we have something to say to one another. We have something to, to build into another. We have another, we have, we have a word to speak to, to instruct. We have a word to speak to correct and guide. And notice that one of the ways we do that, we do that even with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Brothers and sisters, that tells us that singing is not secondary in corporate worship. That as we sing, and as you hear my off-key attempts to verbalize my joy in Christ, you're being reminded of realities. You're seeing that we each believe what we're singing. And as we sing those words, we're not only speaking them to our hearts, but we are compelling one another. Oh, brother, oh, sister, come with me to delight in this Christ who is providing for us in this way. We exhort one another through song. And notice where the song originates. Verse 16, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. You paying attention to what he's saying? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Sing with thankfulness in your hearts. So yes, verbalize, but brothers and sisters, it's got to start inside first, doesn't it? Says one man, the entire man should be filled with songs of praise. We're singing in our hearts before we're singing with our lips. Because, because our mission control center, the inner man, the heart, the conscience, the will, the mind, because it is satisfied with God and grateful to God, it can't help but explode into gratitude. You ever wonder why people aren't grateful? You ever wonder why people don't say grateful things? Because they're not grateful in their hearts. They don't have a song to sing inwardly, so why would they sing outwardly? I don't know about you guys. I get really encouraged when I hear people sing. The other day, Regine and I were sitting in the den and we were talking and I said, shh, 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 listen. 
What? So no, listen. What? Can you hear it? No. Emily singing. I don't think there's anything that gives me much more joy than to hear my daughter, who is hearing impaired, sing. But she's like her daddy. She can't carry a tune in a bucket. But when I hear her singing gospel songs, it gives me joy because she's heard it in her hearts, in her heart. Same thing happens. I caught like two or three of you up here this week. I didn't say anything to you. But I heard you singing when you came up to the building and I just went back to my office and I smiled. There's a grateful heart that can't help but respond in gratitude. And they're singing with joy. They're singing with joy verbally because they are joyful inwardly. And do you notice where that gratitude goes? Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He's the object of our gratitude. We recognize that we are indebted to Him for everything we have. And the only fitting response to what He has given us is gratitude. We, I say we're indebted. I don't really like that word because it, it denotes that we're trying to pay Him back and we can't. That's the point of grace. Is that He's put us in a position where we can't pay, pay Him back. All He wants is our gratitude. All He wants is our thanksgiving. And from the inside out, we pour out our gratitude to Him. We sing from a heart and a life that is genuinely thankful for God's grace to us. And then we feed that gratitude when we are soaked in the peace of God and the Word of Christ. Are you giving thanks to God in your hearts? We're frequently tempted to grumble rather than to give thanks. And I'm tempted in that way just as you are. So the question for us today is, are we complaining internally, even while externally we're saying the things we know we ought to be saying? What are we feeding in our hearts? What are we saying to ourselves about our situations? And are we giving thanks internally? Can I just ask the question? What are you reading to promote gratitude? Is what you're, is what you're watching on television and the movies you see on Netflix, is that feeding gratitude? Or is that feeding discontent? The websites you go to, the news channels you watch, does it feed gratitude or does it feed ingratitude? I told Regine, I can't remember if I've told you guys this or not. I've said it in a couple different contexts. We were watching the election returns, whatever that was, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I leaned over to Ray Jean while we were watching. And I said, you know, even when I agree with what the commentators say, it still ticks me off. <laughs> this is not, this is not good for my heart. And so I am probably one of the least well-informed political people on this planet because it's just not good for my heart. 
So I just ignore it. Keeps me from being ungrateful. Are you singing with gratitude? What song are you singing? There's a third exhortation that the Apostle gives us. It's verse 17. It's gratitude and Christ's commission. Gratitude and Christ's commission. For me, some of the hardest passages in Scripture are not the ones that are technically difficult to understand. There's usually a way to sort all that out. The hardest ones for me are the ones where the Scripture speaks really clearly and there's no outs. I mean, I want an out. I just want, I want just a little bit of wiggle room. And it's stated with absolute clarity, so there's no wiggle room. Verse 17 is one of those. Whatever. Whatever. Not much wiggle room in that word, is there? Every situation, every circumstance, every place, every person, everything, every deed, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever, all. Everything saturated with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, do everything for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's denoting something that would be akin to doing it all to the glory of God. It is done in dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is done in recognition of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is done as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no situation, the Apostle says, in which we find ourselves, which our deeds and our words should not reflect Christ's name, person, and character. Everything. And, and Paul is well aware of the kinds of situations in which he is calling us to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. In situations in which you are tempted to sin, like verses 4 and 5 and 6. Things like immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed and idolatry. When you're tempted in those areas, you have everything you need in order to live, to speak, to act. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In situations where it is hard to be holy. I mean... Verses 12 and 13, we've called to, be whole, called to be holy and compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient. Think Romans chapter 12, where we've just been for the last two or three weeks. And in those situations, that's our calling and that's hard. And the apostle says, you have what you need in order to live in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in that situation. In all your relationships, verse 18, wives with husbands, verse 19, husbands with wives. Verse 20, children with parents, 21, parents with children. 22, slaves with masters, chapter 4, verse 1, masters with slaves. In all of those relationships, in every relationship you have on this earth, some of which are joyful and some of which are tremendously challenging. 
You have what you need in order to do all things according to His name. How do we do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus? Again, I think the next phrase tells us how to do that. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. How, Paul? Giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Giving thanks. Christ is the mediator of our gratitude. Christ is the one who is right now, right now, from the moment of His ascension when He left the disciples in Acts chapter 1 until right now, until He returns in glory, He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So when we're stumbling and we're struggling and we're saying, I don't know how to pray, both the, both the Son and the Spirit are there at the Father's throne praying for us taking our prayers, mediating our prayers to the Father for us. Giving thanks through Him, giving thanks by Him, by means of Him, giving thanks by Him and the salvation that He grants to us, to the Father. In every situation, you have reason to give thanks. Isn't this exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Now I'm not saying, and Paul is not saying, give thanks for everything. We should not give thanks for sin. Thank you, Father, for that sin. It was so enjoyable. Not a prayer. But in every sin, in every hardship, every sin that is committed against me, and I mean the vilest of sin, you know what I'm talking about. There's reason for gratitude. I had opportunity yesterday to speak to a group of men from another church and uh, was unfolding some truths to them. And at the end of the session, one of the guys came to me and said, I'm struggling with this relationship. Help me. I'm, I get along with everybody in my world except my dad. He pushes every button I have and he makes me so angry. You you want to guess how I responded? (laughs) He doesn't make you angry. You choose to be angry in response to him. He can't force you to be angry. And your relationship with your dad is exposing what's in your heart. Yeah, but you don't understand my dad. You don't understand how hard he is, etc. I said, I get it. I have hard relationships too. This is exposing what's in you. Brothers and sisters, every circumstance that you have, every relationship you have, there's reason for gratitude. Your failures, your griefs, there's reason for gratitude. And we need to learn to take the apostle at his word. 
whatever, give thanks. Where are you today? Where are you struggling? Can I ask, where have you not yet given thanks in your life? Sometimes we just forget to give thanks, not because we're opposed to giving thanks. We just haven't thought about it. As you're getting older and you roll out of bed and you don't stand up out of bed, you roll out of bed. It's not that you're upset about the decline of your physical abilities. You just haven't thought about giving thanks and what God is doing and how God is sustaining in the midst of that. And when you're young and you're in your home, you might have a good relationship with your parents, but you just haven't thought about giving thanks for them. Children, it's, it's, it's good to give thanks for your mom and dad, to be intentional, purposeful. What, what are your situation? What's your situation? Have you thanked God for your situation, for your relationships? Have you thanked God for what has been revealed about you when sin has been committed against you? Have you thanked God for confession and forgiveness and restoration of relationships? Have you thanked God for His sufficiency for all things? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him. To God the Father. There's only one way to end this sermon, and that's to give thanks. Would you bow with me as I lead you in an extended prayer of gratitude? Our Father, this day we are thankful. We're thankful that the culture has reminded us that we need to be thankful people. And we do not overlook the kind, common graces that you have given to us, even as you have given them to our culture. We thank you for food. We thank you for access to food. We thank you for shelter, for safety. We thank you, Father, for a government that is, at least on a human level, relatively righteous, doing the right things. We thank you for police officers and sheriff's deputies who are almost always, not perfectly, but generally working for our good. We thank you for people like Tyler who works hard to protect us, not only as we worship, but as we make our way around our community. These are common graces. Father, our hearts are far more grateful for the particular graces you have granted to us. Our Father, this day we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the peace that he provides that has reconciled us to you. 
our Father. It seems almost inconceivable to say that the God of the universe, the God who is infinitely and eternally wrathful against sin, is our Father. That as He is exalted on His sovereign throne over everything over which no thing can say it is not controlled and mastered by Him, that He invites us to come to that throne. That You invite us and give us access. This is what peace that has come through Christ has granted to us. We thank You that we have a Savior that gives us a worthy object for our thoughts so that we ought to be renewed in our minds, even as Paul says to the Colossians. And he is infinitely worthy of being considerated, of being considered and meditated on and delighted in. We thank you that our Savior is at the right hand of the Father, ruling the world with sovereign wisdom, And he is interceding for us, defending us against the unjust accusations of the evil one. And we thank you, our Father, that that while at one time we were guilty, and Satan had every right to make accusation against us, and he had every right to have a claim on our soul, that is no longer true. We thank you, our Father, that we have been freed and we have been liberated And every accusation against us is now unjust, not because we are just in ourselves, but because we have been atoned for, paid for, bought, secured, and kept by the righteousness of the infinitely righteous Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the word of truth that has revealed him to us so that we can know him. We take for granted the copy of the Scriptures that we hold in our hands, the dozens of copies that we have in our homes, when there are still people in this world that the only testimony they have to you is the creation that is around them. They do not have the particular revelation of your Word. And you have given that to us, and you have given us the Spirit to give us understanding to that Word, and you have, you have regenerated us through that Word. We thank You. We thank You for the Spirit that He has sent to control us and to guide us so that we are confirmed to conform to Christ and sanctified. We thank You, Father, not only for our Savior, but we thank You for salvation and its transforming work in us. Thank You that while we used to be enslaved to sin, we are now free from sin. How astounding is that for us to be able to say to every temptation, no, I shall not go that pathway. I follow Jesus Christ because he is my Lord and my spirit and his spirit strengthens me to follow him. Thank you, our father, for your calls in our lives that come to us through salvation to put off sin and put on righteousness and that those calls are possible because of Christ. Thank you for a salvation 
that has granted transformation to us so that while we are not yet what we will be in heaven, we are less than what we were at salvation in that we no longer sin in the way we used to. We've seen progress. We've seen transformation. We've seen growth. We thank you. We thank you, our Father, for the relationships that you have given us. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ, whom you have given us to teach us and to admonish us. We are more like Jesus Christ because of the relationships that we have in the church body. We thank you, our Father, for the spiritual gifts that you give us that not only sanctify us, but are also used by you to sanctify others and to serve others and to minister to others. Thank you, our Father, for relationships in which we learn what heavenly fellowship is like. We know something of your love by the love that we have for one another. And thank you for what we learn about you by accepting one another, by honoring one another, by serving one another, by exhorting and encouraging one another, and forgiving one another. As we practice these things, some of which we acknowledge are difficult, we learn what you have done for us. We learn of your power and your magnificence and your sufficiency. We thank you. For those of us who are married, our Father, we thank you that for marriage and the sweet gift that it is to us to teach us what heavenly marriage and what heavenly home is like. And for those of us who are not yet married or those who were married and are not now married, we thank you that even while we have some sense of loss on this earth, we thank you that you are adequate to be a father and Christ is adequate to be a groom in such a way that we will never be disappointed in you. And while we long for those things on earth, that we have what we need in you. Thank you, our Father, for hard relationships that you have given us. Because it is there that we have learned what it is to confess our sins to one another. It is there that we have learned to be forgiving and to forgive one another. Thank you, our Father, for what we learn about ourselves and our ungodly desires through those hard relationships. And thank you for what we learn about the power of reconciliation through those difficult relationships. Our Father, we thank you for the circumstances in which you have placed us. In this room, we share common circumstances with COVID and governmental leaders. Some of those things are particularly hard for us. But we thank you that we have learned the sufficiency of your grace through those trials. And while we have many things in common with one another, our personal circumstances vary. 
We are in different marriages. We are in different work environments. We have different financial positions, different levels of health. Our Father, we thank you for where you have placed us particularly in each of those circumstances. They are just right to teach us dependence on you, to trust you, and to guide us to gratitude. We are not as thankful as we might be, but our Father, we are thankful. Would you use this week and this word that we have just heard to compel us to greater gratitude? We pray for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen.